Well, before I begin, I need to make a little bit of a correction just so that you'll be aware. I want to thank you for allowing me to be able to go and get some counseling training uh, this past weekend. Very grateful for Brother Brian to fill in the pulpit. However, I was not at an ACBC meeting, nor was I at a ACDC meeting, which some of you guys heard. I was thunderstruck in some ways, but I am not back in black by any means. I was at a CCEF conference, which is the Christian Counseling and Education Foundation conference. So thank you for allowing me to be able to go there and and be able to build up my skills. I say this only because I am not going to be able to be with you next week. Uh, Next week I will be on a camp out with my daughter, Evie, and uh, part of the group that we're in, I get to lead the devotion and worship hour uh, on next Sunday morning. So I will be uh, at Gunnersville leading that devotion. And my dear brother, Brandon Ash, who's sitting back there in the back, is going to be bringing our message next Sunday. So please make sure to to be here and hear the word of the Lord as it comes from Brandon, Lord willing. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you for reminding us of the truths that we sing in song together. That when your body gathers, Lord, we sing about your faithfulness. We sing about the great love and mercy that has been poured out upon us at the cross. We sing about the way that you are faithful to us, that we have strength for today that you provide. And because of this, Lord, we know that you will not leave us, but that you will carry us through even when we go through the dark times, the valley of the shadow of death. And because you were with us, Lord, we will not fear evil. So allow us this morning, Lord, to absorb your word, the promises that it contains, the instruction that it contains, Lord, so that we might see the full value and the worth of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his finished work alone. Amen. Please, if you will, turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. The last time that we were together, I had told you that all of chapter 16 was a coherent unit. It's a chapter that focuses on multiple reactions to the identity of Jesus. It asks the question, how are people viewing and responding to the person of Jesus? It begins with a confrontation with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then comes a warning about the teaching of these religious parties that corrupt what is truly important to be able to, to see and savor the Messiah and what he accomplishes on behalf of his people. And then our Lord asks his disciples what others think of him. And they present him with various theories that are circulating among the people But Jesus takes the question and makes it direct to them, who do you say that I am? And Peter boldly declares that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And because of Peter's confession, Jesus promises Peter, and eventually his companions as well, a glorious future, that they will be building blocks that will participate in erecting his church. Such a glorious moment. Jesus affirms Peter's confession. He says, yes, Peter, it is as you say, I am the Messiah. You didn't arrive on this conclusion on your own. You have been given the gift of grace, recognizing who I am by my Father in heaven. What a privilege. And then in the very next scene, after this mountaintop experience, Peter blows it. And let me offer, I am so glad he did and that it's recorded for us as an example here in Scripture. 
The thinking of the apostle Peter and my own are often aligned in a sin-sick world. I'm so grateful that Matthew and Mark both include this episode. Luke implies that this event occurs in his account within chapter 9 of his gospel, but Matthew, who witnessed the scene, and Mark, who would have heard it from Peter's own mouth, provide us with the details, despite how embarrassing it was, to this bold disciple. Because what Peter does here has likely occurred in the thinking of every believer. Therefore, I'm going to focus here on this disciple today, but only because it will magnify the Lord Jesus all the more. His example exposes the sin that lurks in our own hearts and the grace and mercy that are dispensed by our Lord when we rebel against him. Now, we'll only be able to look at three verses today. They, they pack quite a punch here. But I need to point out that they're part of the teaching of the rest of chapter 16, which speaks about dying to self and taking up one's cross in order to follow Jesus. All three synoptic gospels record this event with that whole narrative in mind, because after Peter's rebuke, it's relevant to the Lord's challenge in the next five verses here. But these first three verses, verses 21 through 23, will provide us with three headings. Jesus discloses the plans of the Messiah, Then we see Peter's revolt against those plans. And finally, we see how Jesus suppresses that revolt. And if you're forming your own outline, then you can title them Plans, Revolt, and Suppression. And at the end of the sermon, we need to take just a little bit of time to think how this should be a warning to us as present-day Christians. Verse 21 reads, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed on the third day, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Now, this is the first of three occasions within this section that Jesus will predict that he must suffer at the hands of the religious authorities. He does so again at chapter 17, verse 12, and also chapter 17, verse 22. And while he's been alluding to his suffering in previous chapters, here he begins to be explicit about events. The verse begins with the words, from that time. Matthew is letting us know that after the revelation that he is the Christ, he is being more open about his future plans. It is confirmation of what he told his disciples in John chapter 15, verse 15, no longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Jesus is now letting his followers in on the full plan. And he's very precise about what his future holds. Remember, at this point, they're on the outskirts of Galilee, but Jesus says they're going to end up in Jerusalem. And when they do, he's going to suffer at the hands of the elders, meaning the members of the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and scribes. This would incorporate the highest religious authority in all of Israel. And that suffering would eventually lead to his own death. But he also expresses a hope. After three days, he will be raised from the dead. And when you think about all this, to predict all of this, this is certainly very precise information. Now, if Peter had been thinking biblically, he should have recognized that this had been the plan all along as foretold in the Old Testament. Passages from centuries earlier said this would happen, such as what we read in Isaiah 49, verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. And this is what he says to that one that's despised. Kings shall see and arise, princes 
And they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. Or Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Or the messianic figure that expresses similar sentiments in Psalm 22. But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. Uh, They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And a passage that has massive implications for our union in Christ, Hosea 6, verses 1 through 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us, and on the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. If Peter had paused at this moment and thought through what Jesus was revealing to him, he would have realized, oh yeah, this is the way that it's supposed to be. The Lord's servant must suffer to atone for the sins of the many. But that is not what Peter did. This man who just confessed Jesus as the Christ, divine as the son of the living God, the very one whom Jesus said would be a stone upon which he would build his church, he missed it entirely. He takes Jesus to the side to have what I would assume is a private conversation, and he has the audacity to rebuke the Lord Jesus. And he says, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. Essentially, Peter is saying, stop this speaking of this suffering business. That's not going to happen on my watch, Jesus. You're not going to do that. You may not accomplish your work on your terms, but on what I think is right. Ever had moments like that? Where you dare to tell the creator of the universe how life should be in order to accommodate yourself? I freely confess I have. Now, it should be admitted that that Peter was probably in protective mode here. The intentions in his heart seemed righteous. He wanted to protect his friend. He wanted to remove the negativity from his thinking. Likely, even though he spoke privately, he felt his fellow disciples would have agreed with him. As Jesus spoke of these things, he might have even said to his friends, it's okay, boys, I got this covered. I will have a word with Jesus and straighten him out. But despite the best of intentions, Jesus was wrong, or Peter was wrong, and Jesus makes that abundantly clear here with the next words. Jesus suppresses this revolt from his favorite disciple. He turned to Peter, meaning that he was probably at a heads-bowed, quiet moment, this conversation happening just between them, and Jesus turns and he looks him directly in his eyes and he says specifically to him, get behind me, Satan. And in my mind's eye, what was probably a quiet conversation just became public. Talk about awkward. The Greek is emphatic. Everyone present probably heard Jesus' rebuke. All attention would have been drawn to this couple previously speaking quietly. This is such a strong word, isn't it? Jesus calling Peter Satan? No, I don't think that Satan was in Peter at this moment as though he was possessed. Christians can't be possessed by demons, but we can be swayed by Satan's influence. 
And Peter becomes a type of Satan, an accuser, an adversary of the Lord Jesus. And if truth be known, what Peter is suggesting here to Jesus is as strong as what Satan did in his temptation back in Matthew chapter 4. Remember that scene in verses 8 through 10? Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now don't miss what Satan was offering there. Bow to me, Jesus, and I'll give you the whole world. It will be my gift, and you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to experience the wrath of your Father for sinful humanity. And here Peter tempts Jesus with another way. Jesus, you can be king without suffering. We will start a movement, and we will make you king. But Jesus tells Peter precisely what he is doing. You are a hindrance to me. We shouldn't miss the wordplay here. Hindrance in Greek is scandalon. It literally refers to a rock that causes you to stumble. Jesus just said, Peter, rock on which I desire to build my church, you are now the rock that can cause me to stumble. And I think we need to see that this is an personal offense here. It's not just that Peter's rebuke could affect us, but it was personal to Jesus. Most likely, our Savior's human flesh found such a prospect appealing. Jesus, you don't have to suffer. You don't have to take upon yourself all the weight of all that offensive sin to your divine nature upon you. You you don't have to suffer the excruciating wrath of your Father. You don't have to die. Surely there's another way to accomplish this. Yet he who was tempted in every way like we are had no sin. Thank God for the strength of Jesus in such a moment. He tells Peter precisely why he was doing this, the motivation here. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, I don't propose that I speak for everyone, but this is my number one problem. When I encounter difficulties, I have a temporal perspective, not an eternal one. It rarely occurs to me that in such moments, God wants tension in my life in order to create faith in him. The great English Puritan, John Flavel, wrote, and this is a quote, Troubles which find us secure leave us desperate and distracted. Presumption of continued tranquility is one of the greatest aggravations of misery. Instead of submitting to God's plan, I desire to forge my own. Peter should have known better, just as I should. The Scriptures taught the Messiah must suffer, and through that suffering, redemption would come to the people of God. It was the plan of the Father. But Peter, simple, loving, passionate Peter, could not accept that God could bring about something so beautiful through the suffering of his Son. Do you realize now what Peter was doing? 
He was rebelling against the preordained, determined plan of his father that Jesus was to obey in absolute faith. If Jesus was to accept Peter's suggestion, then all of us are doomed. There is no propitiation. There is no substitute. There is no sacrifice. There is no redemption. We are all stuck and still enslaved in our sins for all of eternity. Peter is trying to squash our only hope. No wonder Jesus rebukes him so harshly. Peter is doing the work of Satan. Shortly after this, Jesus will challenge all of his followers about the cost to follow him. You have to be loyal exclusively to him. You must die to self. It's either his plan or nothing. You either set your mind on the things of God or you settle for this world, for this fleeting life. That's all you get, just what's in front of you. There is a clear and exclusive path. Jesus is Lord or essentially you are. Now, if Jesus were merely human and not also divine, we might assume that Peter just royally blew it, that Jesus would now cast him aside, that the Lord had lost all of his trust in this passionate passionate fisherman here. After all, Jesus just associated him with Satan, his enemy. Peter just tried to derail Jesus' plan. He was a temptation to pull Jesus away from the work of his father. Even if he gets a second chance to hang out with Jesus, at the very least, don't you think he should get demoted in his rank among the disciples? He should no longer maybe be called rock, Petros, but maybe stumbling block, Scandalon. Maybe we might call him blockhead. No way Jesus would still choose him to build his church upon. But that is not what we see. Don't you just love the fact that God chooses the foolish things of the world in order to confound the wise? That his ways are not our ways? No, Peter may not be faithful in that moment, but Jesus is always faithful. He always keeps his word. In fact, just a few verses later, in chapter 17, verse 1, Jesus selects for a special event the brothers James and John and Peter, just those three, and they will witness the transfiguration and see Jesus in all of his glory. What grace from our Savior. Ponder anew what the Almighty will do if with his love he befriends. What a fount of love. We try to thwart and derail his plans, yet he is always faithful. He is always merciful. He is always full of more grace than we could ever imagine. Now we're going to stop here for just a moment and consider how these words apply. I said that all of us are guilty of having this perspective. It's a battle that I fight daily. It's a constant raging war to set my mind on the things of God and not the things of this world. If we consider the perspective of Jesus, we see what that entails for us in the remaining five verses of this chapter. He's going to be the one to set the example within those verses. Jesus will go to Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21. He will suffer at the hands of the Sanhedrin and the chief priest in chapter 26. They will charge the Lord of glory with blasphemy. They will sit in judgment upon the king of kings. They will disrespect the son of God by spitting in his face. They will beat him and they will mock him. 
And in chapter 27, they will ensure that the Roman authorities treat him even worse. And they will relish seeing the God of the universe nailed to a wooden cross. And they will watch him pull up on those nailed, scarred hands and feet and watch him gasp for breath each time he lifts up and mock and cheer without mercy until he is dead. The cruelty can take your breath away. Jesus will deny himself, and he will take up his cross, and he will follow through in the Father's plan. And yet, as bad as that was, it is not the worst of what Jesus endured. They, they saw the physical pain, but they were unable to see the spiritual transaction between Jesus and his Father as he received the full wrath for every sin committed by the elect. As Martin Luther said, Jesus stood before the Father as the filthiest sinner that will ever live to receive all that condemnation in the flesh. And we learn what happened that moment as foretold from Isaiah 53, verses 10 through 11. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his, lay, his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, meaning the anguish of Jesus' soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he will bear their iniquities. This was Jesus' mission, to make us accounted righteous before the Father as he bore our iniquities. And the proof that the transaction was complete, finished, Paid in full was when the Father raised Jesus from the dead three days later. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We have salvation because of Jesus keeping his mind on the things of God. We have eternal life because Jesus set his mind on the things of God. We will rule with him in heaven because Jesus set his mind on the things of God. Yes, there was suffering, but the suffering brought forth victory. And yet I can also see this from the perspective of Peter. Perhaps you can too. No, Lord, I don't want to suffer. I don't want to take up my cross. I, I want comfort. I want this life. I want to please my flesh. What I see around me causes me to place my affections upon that. Never mind that it's all dying before my very eyes. Never mind that it's not eternal. Never mind that it's passing away. I want what I want. However, the scriptures teach me that the world will hate me because of the Lord Jesus. 
and that I must suffer and place my faith in the Lord's divine plan so that non-believers will see the worth of the Lord Jesus to me. In fact, this very same Peter will write in 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. If God should cause us to suffer for the name of his son, let the amen sound from his people again. I find I have this allure to focus on the things of man. In fact, when I was a kid, a teacher caught me and some friends making an inappropriate joke amongst ourselves. And he said, you boys, you have your minds in the gutter. And he was right. Our minds were in that moment because I had made a mockery of what God intended to be beautiful. In some ways, I find I still have my mind in the gutter, but for different reasons. That phrase came not from gutters that are on the roofs of our houses, but from the gutters that used to line street lanes. The the gutter is where the refuse of the world ends up, all the slop and the mud and the animal filth from the streets. When we set our minds on the earth, we are settling for the things that are dying and passing away. And it's easy to do. And when we do, our minds are in the gutter. The Bible says we must deny self. We must endure for the sake of Christ. We will be persecuted because of him. We must be salt and light in a world that hates us because of Jesus. In fact, Jesus told his disciples, in me you will have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. Take heart, for I have overcome the world. The Holy Spirit tells us this precisely through the Apostle Paul. See if this sounds familiar. Maybe what we're living in right now. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They will be proud. They will be arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness. Now, did you hear that? There will be some even masking themselves in the church, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sin and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. Oh, church, we must be careful to listen to the Lord in his word. We must be sure to stand firm upon the word of God, but make sure you're standing up for Christ and not for your own personal preferences. Make sure you're witnessing your life that you are now living 
By obeying Jesus, faith in him. Too often I have a tendency to do like Peter here, to to fight for Jesus rather than to die for self and accept his plan for my life. So do the test here. Are you setting your mind on the things of God right now? The only way you will know is if you are in the word of God and in the community of God around you seeking to follow his word. And what I mean by that is we all have this tendency to see in God's word only the things we want to see. Therefore, we need our fellow church members, those people who know us best, to challenge us and to make sure we are obeying all of God's words, not just the points that we like or that we find convenient in order to mask our own self-righteousness. Do the test. Are you setting your mind on the world? Let me tell you how I know I'm in the right mindset. I know I am pulling away from setting my mind on the world when I am experiencing the pain, either external or internal, of not getting my own way. I so easily want to give in to the flesh. Again, John Flavel writes, and this is a great quote. I'm not a tattoo person, but if I was going to get a tattoo, I might get one that says this. It is the strength of our affections that puts so much strength into our afflictions. Let me say that again. It is the strength of our affections that puts so much strength into our afflictions. And if I'm not feeling the experience of battling those fleshly desires, then I know my mind is in the gutter of this world. However, I do know that my mind is conforming to his will when I begin to see spiritual fruit in my life. Not not just one fruit, but all of them. Love, joy, peace, self-control, goodness, patience. Do I have to remind you that impatience is a sin? Kindness. How kind are you towards those that you disagree with right now? Gentleness. How gentle are you with others? Does it look like Jesus' gentleness? I'm realizing more and more each day just how much I am not battling enough to set my mind on the things of God rather than the things of the world. It only takes one trip of my car over here to realize that. (laughs) You people just can't get out of my way when I want to be here. (laughs) But it's important for me to remember that I am still battling. It's when I sit still and my sin no longer bothers me, or I think that God is here to do my bidding and that he should do things my way, that's when I'm in danger. But I'm so glad that Peter sets an example here of when he blew it. Despite his sin, Jesus didn't let up on him. Jesus still went to the cross for Peter. And he still offers mercy and grace on this day when we blow it. Church, we have two perspectives for us in the days ahead. And I'm not going to lie about the options. One is to create our own kingdom upon the earth. To settle for the here and now, which, as I mentioned, is passing away. 
The other is that we are being called for endurance. We are being called to persevere. That means we may be called to walk through some dark days as the world hates us. Some sermons are not meant to give us warm fuzzies, but to remind us that our Savior is worthy of our all. We need to be asking ourselves, why is suffering such a stranger to us? Why do we not expect it while enjoying the day of peace? Does not the word plainly tell us that all who will live by a godly life in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution? That we must through much tribulation, enter into the kingdom of God? Did we not covenant with Christ to to take up our cross and follow him? Crosses are made of hard wood. They are heavy. They are a burden, particularly in our own strength. But the promise of God is to his children is not easiness. It is faithfulness. It is strength for today and bright hope tomorrow. Now, some of you won't like that. You say, no, no, pastor, don't don't tell us about suffering. I I don't want that. Tell us that Jesus is going to take away all the pain in this life, that that I don't have to suffer, that it's going to be easier, and my life is going to be more accommodating because of Jesus. But many times God calls us to walk through the shadows in order to A, demonstrate that he is sufficient. B, that he is always true to his word. And C, that he is a better treasure than the created things. David understood this, comparing it to his former life as a shepherd. As king, he went through many trials and tribulations, but he was able to reflect in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. David knew his shepherd would carry him through the trials. That rod and that staff that he spoke about that comforts him is the rod that would poke and prod the sheep to go in the right direction where the rest and the plentiful table was waiting for him. Therefore, David knew he could set his mind on the things of God and not upon the things of man. In the New Testament, Paul said it explicitly in 2 Timothy chapter 2. This saying is trustworthy, he writes, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he always remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Oh, come and place your faith in the Savior that made the way to your peace and your comfort before the Father 
and gives you the reason to endure in this present life. Let's pray. Lord, my prayer is simple. I hope my brothers and sisters know that I am praying it for myself as well as I pray for them. I pray, Lord, that you will allow us to set our minds on the things of God and not on the things of man. That in the coming days, Lord, when the challenges come upon us, that we will think with a biblical worldview, that we will recognize, Lord, that the life we live now in the present is not our eternity. And that you are leading us towards that wonderful life before your throne to where we know that goodness and mercy just overflows and, and overwhelms us. And that until that time comes, Lord, that we would be constantly drawing upon Christ and the gospel and what he did on our behalf to endure, to persevere to know that even when you call us through dark times, when you call us to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, that we will not fear that, Lord, we know that you are guiding us, that you are always with us as the shepherd. And that in the midst of it, Lord, we will prove to those around us, we will be a bright, shining beacon, a witness to others, Lord, that you are worthy. You are worthy of our all so much so that we would die to ourselves in order to make you known. Let that, Lord, be our prayer to set our mind on the things of God and not the things of man until we reach eternity. We pray this because of the finished work of Christ. Amen.